welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. And today we are talking about Samuel McIntyre, the architect of Salem. I wanted to like jump in if it had been my turn and I was going to just be like, we're going to talk about Charles Bullfinch, Johnny Appleseed, that's Nathaniel Hawthorne. No, that's... And, and, just, and just have you like look at me like what am I talking? Watch steam come yes. out of my ears. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, earlier I was trying to think of like how many names I could come up with that like wasn't Samuel McIntyre that to, to... <laughs> so, Yeah. So you can get the face that you're getting right now. <laughs> Wide eyed. Yes. It would have been fun. For a hot second. Yeah. And I, I I thought that Johnny Appleseed was the best because I always think McIntyre is Macintosh. Yeah, I will agree with that. It's kinda hard not to Right. Mix up the two. Yeah. But I love that you go a step further and go to Johnny Appleseed. Well, he's but, the one who plants all the apple, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Macintosh, Apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. McIntyre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So basically Samuel McIntyre planted. Houses. Houses. Planted houses. Planted. I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. No, but he was truly the architect of Salem. I'll be honest. I was not that keen on this topic at first. And I was kind of like, meh. I didn't really care that much. I'm not one for architecture, full disclosure. But Which is weird because you, you love. You I do. love looking at it. I <laughs> guess I just didn't really, I, like I don't have the vocabulary for it. Okay. Like as a profession, as an art form, like it is truly an art form. I never really was that, you know, you know I so wasn't I, searching it out. It's but. one of these things that, that I get a little frustrated about sometimes because I know that I don't and I know I don't know, uh-huh. right? And also, like, a lot of the terms tend to confuse me. And and sorry if any of you get confused. We're going to try and keep it, like, a little simple. But, like, oh, the Federalist and the architecture and the columns and the this. And, and the, the Georgian, and, like, yeah. all the different time periods. Like, oh, oh, well, this the is characteristics. A, a Greco-Roman reconstructive era. And you're like, I just, and I just get lost. And yeah. it's not like that I don't care. It's, I'm like, that's pretty. I like that. And that's kind of enough for me most of the time. Exactly. Um, no, a hundred percent. And same thing with like furniture. Yes. Like, I don't know if you ever, you go into a museum and you know, you have the wood carving, the specialty furniture. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. It doesn't do much for me. I always, again, it's like one of these things like I appreciate and I was like, wow, that's really cool. But it's like, I, I don't necessarily care that this one was made in, you know, 1754 with an inspiration of et cetera, et cetera. And this one was made in 1789 and in that time period, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> right. And then yeah. which it, it allowed for the, the, the evolution of this style. And I'm just like, they're both gorgeous. Uh-huh. And and I and I love them both. And there's probably some people who are listening right now who are a little steam blown. They're like, what? How do you not? And, and it, it's, some things are outside of the wheelhouse, but I really do. I, I think that the architecture conversation, especially like talking a little bit about McIntyre Day, is one of the most important here in Salem. And I sort of say this on my night tour. Um, and I don't know if you say it at all. It's like people are like, oh my gosh, I love Salem so much. It's so cute and the bricks and the buildings. And they're like, oh, and the witch trials. And I was like, no, 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 you, you're missing like a century. <laughs> a big section in between. Yeah. And like the, the reason that people love Salem so much is like, oh, it's got the vibe. It's got the feel. You walk down the street and like what you're surrounded by is a direct result of this guy. 
I fell in love with this research. I have a totally new appreciation for walking down the street, and I'm so excited that we're covering it, and I hope that by the end, people that are listening, whether you're a local to Salem or you're coming to visit, you'll stop and look just a little bit longer, a little bit more at some of these buildings that we're going to talk about, because his story really does come alive, and I think he's unique in the fact that he's left so much behind. Like, what other person out of Salem's history, could you look around and point at physical remnants of his work? I don't think there's anyone. Very, I, very little, if anyone, very little. I'm excited. Yeah. But before we jump into the bulk of the episode, we did do a little fun thing last night. Yes. Want to tell them a little bit about it? We, we hijacked, that's the wrong word. (laughs) Uh, We did not hijack anything. Infiltrated? With permission? Yeah, we bought tickets. Yes, yes, I, I did. But uh, we took another walking tour. Um, and so uh, it, it, not something we do very often. But we do try and, uh, you know, uh, as tour guides, as, as uh, operators and, and tour givers and whatnot in the city, uh, it's nice to, to get a different perspective sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like, like in, we hear each other sort of passing on the street occasionally. Um, you got to be careful though, and tour wars and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. we got to be respectful. But we did, like you said, get permission. Yes. Uh, so we took a tour with Tom from the Satanic Temple walking tours. Tom, the tour guide, Tom as tour he guide. is known. Yeah. Uh, and and his his new uh, little puppy Satan. Oh, it was so cute <laughs> in a little stroller. It yes. was great. Uh, it was it was a cold night. Uh, I think this is the last weekend he's doing tours till till April time frame. But uh, he is the number one rated tour in Salem. So if you go on TripAdvisor, the, the number one, I think he has like all five star reviews. He might have like one one star review. Like what what's the, what's this guy doing? And it was fun. No, it was fabulous. It was so it's put on by the Satanic Temple. Yes. And that was a very unique perspective because we got a little bit of that. We got a little bit of witch trials. Mm-hmm. We got a little bit of just other history. Yeah, like he talked about uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. He talked about Front Street. The Quakers, yeah. which was super fascinating. I don't think I've heard anyone else talk about the Quakers. But it, it was this weird, not weird in a bad way. I feel like like he's telling like he, he's your buddy that you just like got a drink with. And he's just like chatting you about Salem. Yeah. Right? He's not like... He doesn't go into like a full lot of history. He doesn't go into like a lot of the names and dates and times. It's a lot of sort of like concept, but you walk. But a, big concepts. But big yeah. concepts and, and told very well. And you know, like, oh, okay, I get that. And he, he's very good at relating it to, to the modern era um, and especially sort of relating it to, to his experience and his role uh, in the Satanic Temple mm-hmm. and, and their uh, belief structure and what they stand for. Uh, and, and sort of, you know, uh, how that is very contrary to what the Puritans believed and stood for. Um, so that, that was pretty neat. Yeah, it was a great tour. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. We had a very full Salem day yesterday. Oh, good Lord. We also yes. went to Harmony Grove yes. and another location, which we're going to keep secret until well, the end of this episode. I was gonna, I'm sitting here like, what are you doing? You said we got a list. Like you said, we're going to do that at the end. I'm yeah. Like, Sarah, why are you going to give, give them a little hint. Okay. Okay. Did get to knock something off my bucket list. So. <laughs> oh, good Lord. And Jeffrey has made plans to put in an offer for me. <laughs> if I've made plans <laughs> to, to buy property. Okay. For Sarah. 
You know, I didn't win the the, the, the two billion dollar lottery. Shoot, I'm not sure if that next, would have covered it. Next time. Next time. But other than that, I think that's that's about all we got before jumping into it. Um, I have no tour stories because I'm done giving tours. Uh, you had any? I mean, things have been slow. Yeah. Had a couple listeners here and there, but um, yeah, just looking to wrap up the rest of the season. It's cold out there. It got it got cold like Saturday. The last Saturday, it was like seventy degrees, and now it's like ooh. ooh. Heads up. Heads last up. thing before we dive into the episode, if you are a Salem local or in the area, or want to come to the area around Thanksgiving time, the day after Thanksgiving, Friday the twenty fifth, Santa will be arriving on the top of the Hawthorne Hotel. Yes, he with- gets stuck. He gets stuck, and of course, the Salem Fire Department is there to help him. Yeah. So, and then I believe that's when they light the tree as well. Yes, I, I, I've never seen this. I go away for Thanksgiving every year, so I would have to like bounce out of Thanksgiving, come back here to see that, and maybe one day I will. Um, but I'm, I'm, he gets re- he gets, he lands on the top of the Hawthorne, and then the fire department rescues him and brings him down to the tree. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, so you'll have to give us a, a full report on that next week. I do have a tour story. I saw Santa the Friday. In, in the sky with his reindeer? <laughs> no, in Salem. In Sa- What was he doing? Behind Opus and Turner's. No, he was not smoking, <laughs> Jeffrey. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. You're like. No, no, no. He popped. He was popping out of like the back door. A chimney? No. <laughs> a back door. If that a line chimney. of you can say it was a chimney. It wasn't a chimney. You're a liar. He, ground floor. Ground floor. Chimneys are on ground floors. He was just wandering through. I was setting up Did for you the on t- his lap? No. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I was setting up for the tour stop and my back was to Turner's uh-huh. and out as people are setting up, I turn around and out pops Santa. I had my speaker on. I was like, Santa. You're early. Of course, <laughs> people start pulling their phones out. They're like taking pictures. Like poor Santa. Anyone in a Santa costume probably gets so much paparazzi year round. Because who would expect to see Santa in early November? So this was the Friday after Halloween, by the way. Years ago, I was driving down the street, uh, the highway, and I saw um, uh, a red PT Cruiser, right? Do you remember when the, those were like uh-huh. super popular? And as I'm getting closer to it, the license plate says like N T H P O L North Pole. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and then there was like you know like the the little um, people cutouts that you like you got kids. Yeah, there's like did he like, have reindeer? Like reindeer yes. cutouts. <laughs> and then uh, there was like another sticker on the back, and I was like, wow, this guy's like doubling down on like this Santa thing. And I was with, with my friend Paul, and we're driving. We pass him, and he looks, and he waves. He is like fully Santa, white beard. <gasps> whole nine and like waves and we're like freaking out like oh my god oh my god it's santa we saw santa and like he looked what time of the year was this it was like june (laughs) that's great it it was not it was not in any way around christmas um but it's some people live their lives as santa it's like a thing dude he he was legit and like like it was a, a big white beard in the mud and he rosy cheeks and he's waving at like he knew and like um, we're, we're just like oh my like we, we we went and slowed down like took pictures oh my it, gosh yeah. that's great it was fun again if you're around in salem the day after thanksgiving santa will be arriving i believe they said get there around 5 45 okay. that's that's when you want to arrive and i think he comes at six so 
also, uh, just a heads up for, for everyone else, and, and, and we'll try and, and drop these, uh, but obviously if you're not listening, if you're listening six months from now, then it's not 100% relevant. Um, there's a lot to do around the Christmas, uh, or the, excuse me, around the holiday season uh, here in Salem. Uh, we're, we're doing the house tour. We'll talk about that when we do that. There is markets most weekends. Uh, the Salem Flea's doing stuff. There's uh, tree lightings. There's stuff in Danvers. There's pretty much every weekend. There's like some Something. festive. There's the Krampus thing. We'll be talking about that. The whole downtown's going to be pretty decked out. There will be garland and lights wrapped yeah. around the poles. So uh, for obviously Salem's big Halloween time, uh, but but we're we're pretty good around the holiday season as well. I know there's uh, Yule celebrations. Um, there's also I I, I know there's going to be a few places. Oh, the Christmas Carol trolley. We can't forget about the Christmas that. Carol trolley, which which we're doing. Uh, all, so all these sorts of things are going on around Salem. If you're local, if you're looking to come to Salem, if you're like, oh, should I come in? The, there's yeah, come. There, there, there's fun stuff to do, and just check out. I'd say check out Destination Salem uh, for probably a. A continued updated list of of what's going on just remember to dress very warm yes because we are a coastal town and that wind can bite you were, you were a little chilly last night yes i was I and you. i was filled with hand warmers i, I saw you, you you rubbed I, one on your face yes i was point. <laughs> multiple points i was taking i didn't think anyone would see I, I was taking my hand warmers out of my pockets and just putting them on my face because it was so cold no matter what you do, by the end, your toes are frozen. That's why we usually take a break during wintertime, because it can just get a little too chilly here. Mm-hmm. Back, and, back to, to architecture, architectural genius. Yes. Mr. Samuel McIntyre. That's M-C-I-N-T-I-R-E, by the way. Um, Were you spelling it wrong? I always want to put like a Y, like Mac, like M-A-C, oh. or put like a Y in there, like McIntyre. Like, gotcha, I, I like Macintosh. Yeah, right? <laughs> getting back to the Johnny Appleseed thing. So where, do, where do we want to start with him? So let's start with his early life. He was baptized at the First Church in Salem on January 16th, 1757. So we can deduce that he was probably born shortly before that. So likely a Capricorn. Oh my God! Really? <laughs> oh, I forgot. We haven't. We used to do this. We used yes. to talk about how we'd bring up their signs. Okay. I thought you'd forgotten. I was waiting for that. I totally forgot. Yeah. Yeah. So to be fair, so I, I think we did it for like the first person, and then we're like, we're gonna do this, and haven't done we it. Forgot. Since. So he's a Capricorn. Yes. Okay. Can you look up some Capricorn traits real quick? Uh, ambition and determination. Fitting. Sure. Definitely fitting. He was born to Sarah Ruck and Joseph McIntyre. Joseph McIntyre, his father, came from a long line of house rights, so home builders. And his mother was described as having, quote, good New England blood. Mm, that sounds a little... I know. I wasn't the biggest fan of the phrasing, but the book I got it from came out in 1940. Oh. So, like, oh, there, there understandably so. Sure. I, I like the term... Um house right right because like, right <laughs> I, like i read that and i was like i'm like what's that? i was like i know it if i said shipwright i i wouldn't have given that term a second thought uh-huh but house right i was like oh well i guess and then my mind you know you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so Just, basically you're a carpenter but you're, you're building full-blown homes yeah the mcintyre family moved to salem in about the 1720s and they came to the colonies around the 1650s 
He was born right here in Salem, and he will spend his entire life here and doesn't really venture too far outside of it. Which I think is a little weird because a lot of these people, especially in that, did a lot of traveling and or whether it was to Boston or New York, or even like getting educated over in England mm -hmm. um, or, or, or there. When you look at like historical figures, there tends to be a bit of a... If you've got the money and you've got the power and the prestige, you're probably going out and showcasing that in other places. Yeah, you're yeah. going over to Europe. You're hanging with politicians. You're going so, oh, educated in France. Philadelphia, yeah. New York, Boston, Baltimore. which he definitely would have gone to Boston at some points. But farther than that, he really didn't, you know. Do you know if he, oh, we can get to, do you know if he went to Washington or no, just. I don't think he, I don't think he went to Washington. I, I didn't think so either. Yeah. He, um, I'm pretty sure he stayed within a very close radius to home. And he reminded me of Elias Haskett Derby in that way, that he was... Well, they were contemporaries. They were contemporaries. And that Derby, as we've said before, he didn't go out sailing at all, ever, on the water. He kind of, you know, he pulled the puppet strings from back home. He coordinated everything. And Samuel McIntyre was kind of similar in that way. He won't be doing, by the end of his career, he won't be building homes anymore. He's going to be at his shop kind of coordinating. Building chairs. Building <laughs> chairs, carving ornamental pieces, and kind of overseeing other people, some of which were his family, his brothers. They're the ones that are doing the building, whereas he's doing the designing, the carving, all the specialty stuff. I found it very weird. So he sort of is this wood carver and then becomes an architect. Those are two very different things. So it's an interesting um, progression right. like, that his, his career goes through. Yeah. But like the, the idea of an architect, and we, we're going to talk about some of these houses. So it was, this building was designed by Samuel McIntyre, but then he also carves all these things that are on it or around it or this fireplace. Or, and you're like, so not only are you like doing the walls and the layout and the ceiling and you know that sort of stuff but and so i think today and i could be wrong if there's like an, an architect out there um correct me but the the guy who is designing the, the layout and the floor plan is not usually the one that's building it or carving the columns out front or that the, the eagle over the the door frame is not done by the same person no and, and we know he doesn't build the houses. I mean, he's not, you know, the one man out there, like, raising the walls and stuff. He probably, he definitely did it in early in his training. Yeah, yeah. That was where his first um, training came from, was his father, actually, yes. was, you know, as we said, a house right. So he started training at a very young age, did not go to grade school of any type, college or anything like that. And he did come from a modest home. Uh, I'm sure his family probably could have afforded it, but... They are house rights by trade. So, of course, he's going to work alongside his father, as well as his brothers. So we did not mention there. He's one of several siblings. Joseph preceded him in 1748, so about a decade his senior. And I'm not sure about how to pronounce this one. I looked up a lot of pronunciations for this episode, but I struggled with this one. You want to give it a shot? Go for it. I keep wanting to call him angrier, but there's no R. Angier. I, I would I would say that's probably a little more correct. Angier. A-N-G-I-E-R. Angier. Angier. Ang Angier. Angier. I'm not sure. Angier. So he's got two brothers, and then I've seen everything from one to several sisters. Yeah. No, I saw, like, his sister, and then I saw, like, and I was like, it was a little, 
And it's one of these weird things that, like, for all the information we have about him, some of the rest of it is just, like, a, seems a little lost. Uh-huh. We don't have a lot. And it reminded me of the Witch Trials episodes, how there is so much that we're missing. We have a lot of McIntyre's stuff. We've got a lot mm-hmm. of his drawings, a lot of his etchings. But I don't think there's a single letter that survives. There are thank you notes and like correspondences, like receipts and stuff like that. But there's not a single letter. Everything that we know about him is primarily through his work. Mm-hmm. But I did have a, a little bone to pick with that one. His sister is kind of just getting written out of the story. We don't have names. We don't even know if it's one sister or multiple sisters. They're just kind of meh. You know, they're not in history, which is unfortunate. But thus is the experience of women throughout time. Well, it's like one of the weird things. Um, I think with a lot of people, and not not just uh, uh, that. I remember um, Jane Austen. Her her works, most of her works, weren't published till after she died. Uh, by one of her brothers or siblings, and like, I could have gotten that wrong. She'd written like one or two things, but she'd written like all these other novels. Um, but then he, uh, he go after she passed away, he goes and publishes them under her name. She just didn't have like the platform at that point. Yes and no. Um, but she also has like six or seven other siblings, mm-hmm. and her family was wealthy and prominent. And I think there's like three of them that we know like nothing about. And like one of them was in the military, and one of them might have been like a governor or or something and i'm sorry if anyone is like a huge fan out there i'm sorry i'm screwing this up um and then she we know like because she's the 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 famous one Uh but even we didn't learn like a lot of that till after she passed away and because of that there's like very little we have like all our public like personal correspondence and letters and works of hers none of that existed because during her life she wasn't like the big name Mm -hmm. she passes away and gets all her work recognized becomes that big name and then you try and look at like her family dynamic and you're like but we know nothing about them right because of that it tends that that famous person tends to get and then you're like oh yeah there's so many others right that's interesting feel kind of bad for the other siblings right you're like sorry guys Speaking of that, I'm going to just interject a little correction I want to make on myself from the last episode. As I was doing the editing, I was kicking myself. I was angry when we were talking about Carol Carlson and her coming forward with this idea that women were more heavily targeted and why, asking that question of why and talking about, you know, gender hierarchy in the witch trials. And I had said that no one was thinking about that. No one was putting that out there in the 19th century. And then I realized, well, yeah, because the only people that are doing and publishing and producing history are white men. So it's not that people didn't have those ideas. We can't know for sure. But I would venture to guess that some women back in the day looked back at the, sto- the Salem story and thought, wow, a lot of women are being targeted. I... I wonder. So it's not that they didn't, it's not that they weren't probably thinking about it, but they didn't have the voice at that point. They didn't have the platform. So I I wonder uh, what someone like Louisa May Alcott thought of, of the Salem witch trials. And if there is any 
record, and it's something we you could we could probably easily look into, and it just they just might not survive. Mm-hmm. But like someone who lived in Concord from a very forward thinking family, that transcendentalism, that you know idea, and and they were well connected and well established and and well read, and she's published, and you know so from Concord, which is you know very close, very close, there were women, uh, and her her father, her mother as well, um. There's no way that they didn't know about the trials. Right. Right. So, like, what did they think? What did, did they have discussion? Like, they, she was taught to be forward thinking, mm-hmm. to, to be outspoken, to, to be literate, to, to, to be published. Um, and I, I wonder uh, if her and some of her peers ever. It's an interesting thought, right? But then it would also, you have to hope that they don't look back at the trials and think, oh, these were just a bunch of idiots that it, fell. It, which, they, which they might have because given the information they had at the time. Anyway, yeah. we could, that's a whole We could just episode. go on and on. But yeah. And speaking of the trials, real quick, like Samuel McIntyre, when he's growing up, remember he's born in 1757. So we're less than 100 years after the Salem Witch Trials. So they would have been in people's, you know, Thoughts, not maybe not thoughts, but there. Well, there were people alive who would have exactly. I wonder when that's ooh ooh. When did like I don't know Betty Paris die? Right. What about Ann Putnam? Ann right? Putnam Jr. Yeah, yeah she would have still 12, been alive. And this only so she would probably would have been in her sixties or seventies. That's interesting. Um, they they that's weird to think that McIntyre could be walking the streets with like, people that were pointing the fingers at the Salem witch trials. So, but that's how. But so he's like ten or twelve, and I I don't we I could again we could probably Google all, all of this, but like if she's like sixty seventy, uh huh, they could have crossed paths. Man, that's weird, right? But as you said on your tours, when people are looking around and they're thinking, oh Salem witch trials, this cool quirky town with all this beautiful old architecture, you're missing that middle part, like mm-hmm. that the years between sixteen ninety two. And 1792, those are extremely dynamic years. That's when you see most of the activity. I would have said 1670-ish. Yeah. When we start moving in. 1770-ish, my apologies. And when we start moving towards the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. So I think we should probably talk about that, is where McIntyre is falling in this period of history. Because it is significant. And I think it's one of the reasons why he was so inspired, was so motivated, and, of course, was, from a logistical standpoint, prosperous because Salem, without this explosion in economic activity, McIntyre, someone like McIntyre, wouldn't have flourished as much in a different town where it wasn't this bustling, rich seaport, you know? We can thank General Gage probably for that. Uh, he, he's uh, the uh, British general who blockades Boston Harbor. Right, uh, right, right, right. forces uh, then that significant amount of sh- shipping traffic up up through Salem. And that's when Salem becomes the capital, yeah, correct? Yeah. So, it, and that's weird. So it's like all of a sudden now there's this like shift in whatever you want to call it, socioeconomic climate. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a seaport. And now it's like, you know. It's it, the seaport. It's the seaport. And the, the Venice of the New World, and, and it's it's this 
radical change. And for someone like Matt, well, someone like for McIntyre, someone like McIntyre, <laughs> for McIntyre, there is no one like McIntyre, right? Well, like in, in, in many of his, someone yeah, like Derby right. or McIntyre, you know, the, these people living in the community at that time, they they are able to ride that wave. History, uh, they're born at the right time in the right place, mm-hmm. um, with the right knowledge, and you know. It, it, to be fair, both of them, Derby and, and McIntyre, you're you're looking at them and you're like, you come as a, his father is a house right. He is a wood carver, an architect. And now all of a sudden, all the money flowing into the city, well, because Derby, as an example, you know, his, he was a merchant. His father had money. Now he has money. Now he's mm-hmm. looking for someone to build a house. And you're just going to connect with these people who are in the community at that point in time. And that's how this, this economic drive happens in Salem and how McIntyre ends up designing and building the houses he does. Several of which for the Derby family. So we'll talk a little bit about how their relationship came to be and how long it lasted because we're talking decades. I mean, not that many. He dies. Well, Derby dies. But with the Derby family, over the course of decades. Yeah. And speaking of the revolution, Samuel McIntyre's father will die in 1776. So I thought about that, like, what a time to go. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, at this point, McIntyre has pretty much finished his training under his father, his apprenticeship, as well as his brothers. So they are completely equipped and ready to take over kind of the family business. He'll go on to marry Elizabeth Field in 1778 at the age of 21 years old. And they will have one son that survives, Samuel Field McIntyre, born late 1780. And he will, too, join in on the family business and uh, work closely alongside his father as his father had done before him. The the, the old family business, as, as it were. Now, when he marries Elizabeth, he'll end up moving into her family's home, and they'll stay for, there for a bit. Oh, and then his house on, on Summer. But then he purchases a plot of land on Summer Street. Mm-hmm builds a home for himself in 1786 so we are jumping a little bit forward and he has a little shop on the back as well so so, so just to sort of again sir and we're going to keep doing this so uh war's over gained our independence 1784 remember that's when derby sends the grand turk uh with his son no sorry yes no no yes around the the, the horn of Africa. so that evolution of Salem's economy is already well underway mm-hmm. so we are we are coming into that time period the quote-unquote great age of sale and here we have uh McIntyre who's now married he's now starting a life for himself and I'm sure like he's talented obviously uh but I and I couldn't find like did he see the writing on the wall was he like no, I think he just had a passion yeah that's what yeah. that's one thing that I love about him so much is he did what he loved. I think he just latched on. I mean, when you're born into a fam, say you're born into a family of lawyers and they expect you to become a lawyer, like we know how that goes. You see it still in today's world. Yeah. And I'm sure his family expected him to continue with the family business. But then he happened to be remarkably good at it. But he loved it. He loved it. And just to give you an idea of where his home was, because unfortunately it is no longer mm-hmm. standing. Imagine if you're walking down Chestnut Street towards downtown, like towards the Merchant Hotel, towards Housewich, towards 
the center, the city center, towards the wharf. As you come up to the end of Chestnut, you'll see a rotary. He was just on the other side to the left. And again, unfortunately, the building no longer stands, which I tell you, what a a thing to miss out on. McIntyre's home that he built himself. And it was relatively modest from what I read. It wasn't extravagant. It wasn't filled, you know, with... It wasn't super ornamental or anything like... Nothing like what he will later create for these rich patrons. So he does... He builds that in... 1786. Or at least he acquires the land in 1786. So he's already started his career prior to that. Yes, of course. I did want to mention his ship work. So this is something that he would have been doing pretty much throughout his career. I think the earliest recording we have for him working on ships is in 1776. So right at the heels of the revolution. He And I, I was wondering, when I saw his age, I was like, oh, he probably fought in the Revolutionary War. No. That would make sense. But no, he didn't because he was working as a housewright and a shipwright during that time. You know, he was helping maintain mm-hmm. these schooners that these privateers are using. So, so we also have to remember uh, the, the privateering, the privateering role of Salem was paramount within the scope of the Revolutionary War. It was not, so he might not have been, you know. Actively fighting. Right. But it's like, <laughs> you need the ships. You need to go on the ocean. The Royal Navy was the, the massive threat, trade, uh, supply lines. Uh, so that that's the, the role in which he took. There are receipts that survive from working on Joshua Ward's ships. So, of course, Joshua Ward, gentleman who commissions him to build the Joshua Ward house, becomes the Merchant Hotel. Mm-hmm. And he also worked on the Grand Turk, which I find so fascinating. Wasn't the Grand Turk built up in... Wasn't no? Am I making that up? I didn't say he built it, oh, he but worked he worked on. on it. Oh, okay, okay. He did. He wasn't a shipbuilder, but he did work on the ships. Okay. So he did a multitude of jobs throughout the years on the Grand Turk um, for a variety of things. But one of the last ones was finishing the Grand Turk's cabin. So that's what I think of. Like when you go onto a ship. You see all like the the intricate carvings, the embellishment, especially if you go into the captain's cabin. These carvings would have been, of course, this is the the first ship to go to the Far East. This is owned and 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 operated by the the wealthiest man in Salem. Of course, he's going to have McIntyre do some carvings on this ship at some point. And then just sold off for a cargo ship. Um, But cool, no? what's, What's the cabin in the PEM? That's not from the. That's not a replica of the Grand Turk, is it? I'm not sure. You know what I'm talking about. I don't about? think it is. Okay, I wonder if he had a hand in that because that's gorgeous. So if, if if that's any any indication of what the Grand Turk m- must have looked like, I feel like I know what the ship is, and it's just not not coming to me. Yeah, if you go into the PEM currently, there is an entire exhibit devoted devoted to like shipping, mm-hmm. not only like art about the seas and and trade but a full-blown replica of a ship's cabin that and, you can walk into. And, and, and this isn't, this isn't like you, we say ship's cabin. It, it's like a grand, grand is the wrong word because it's, it, 
No, it is grand. The ceiling's low, so so don't think like grand hall grand, but in terms of decor grand, um, and it, it's very it, it's nicer than most living rooms. Yeah, it is not what I would have expected. You know, you're like, oh, this was on a ship in the late. You're like, really? It's like, like a Cadillac of the seas. Yeah, yeah. So probably very. So, so he probably worked on something very similar to to that. But cool, right? Yeah. How how these these stories keep crossing. It's all, it's like a, like a, oh, 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 what's the word? Um, web. Detritus? Is that the? No? What? Okay, never mind. D- Detritus? Detritus. I don't know what that means. That's, that's it. Don't worry about it. I'm, 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 I'm pulling from like years. Yeah, it's like, like a web of, of inter- interconnected people. Yeah. And we talk, I think we talk a lot about how these families intermarried. Like you want to keep wealth in the family, right. prestige, well, you have the crown power. Shield, the dirties, right. the, yeah, yeah. But like, I never really thought about the intersections between the 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 jobs, right? Like the the people that are making a name for themselves in it's carpentry, not, it's not carving. What you know. It's who you know. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool that he intermingled among some of the elites in town. But I think before we focus too much on his career, maybe we tell them a little bit about what he looked like and his personality. It's weird. You like music. What do you mean? What do you mean he's? Do you say he's weird? Weird looking. Are you yeah, making yeah. fun of McIntyre's looks right now? I, I mean, so it's we obviously we don't have pictures, you know, but you see these paintings. There is one portrait. There is one portrait that survives of him, and it's done right around the age of thirty. This is about your age. <sighs> what do you think? Would you would you go chat this guy up at a bar? Heck yeah. Okay. <laughs> If I knew, like, his back... Well, at this point, he's married, so unfortunately, no. But I also wonder if maybe he was one of those people that was just too devoted to his work. Mm. Like, how often does his wife, like, Samuel, come to bed. Like, come on. And well, he's, he's got like, a few kids. He went to bed a couple times. Oh, God. Jeff. <laughs> he's got one kid. Oh, well, then at well, least one. At least one. Gosh. Who, who else? Who else did you like? Oh, my gosh. Who was it? No, I did. After I heard his epitaph. I was like, oh, Samuel McIntyre. Was that who? Because like like six months ago, we were, there was, mm-hmm. and you were like, oh, oh my goodness, was it? Was that? Was yeah, that? I think it's Samuel McIntyre. Okay, okay. Yeah, we're gonna save his epitaph to the end, as we should, or as we would, or as you do. But yes, this portrait of him shows a somewhat long face, uh, looks like brownish hair, tied back. He's in a blue coat, blue vest, blue eyes. I think one of those is probably a frock. I don't know. I'm just making that word up. I don't actually know what those actual things are. What's the neck thing? I should know these things. I don't know that much about men's dressing habits back then, so I can't help you there. But all in all, he's a pretty good-looking guy. Okay. And we know a little bit about his personality. There are several descriptions of his character, and I'll tell you what, people just gushed over this man. Some of the best descriptions we have come from the diary of William Bentley, who was a pastor of the East Church in Salem and McIntyre's friend and mentor. So now this diary is actually published, so you can, I, I kind of yeah. want to pick it up and check out, you know, what Salem looked like during this time, because what a great picture to paint. But of McIntyre, he said, quote, he had a fine person, a majestic appearance, He's described as having a vigorous mind, 
over the course of his life, he would become well-versed in other classical pursuits. He could play an array of musical instruments, including the bass viol. How do you say that? Viola? It's just viol. V-I-O-L. Then, then, sure. He wrote music and even taught singing lessons. In fact, he completed the woodwork for the first organ in Salem, which is pretty cool. Towards the end of his career, he will take his wood carving to a whole different level and be sculpting like actual busts of people, um, statues that you would see in you know a museum. He which is creating. They are in museums. Which they are in museums today. Um, he's creating these things out of straight wood, which to me I was stunned by. Have Have you been to the the place in in Worcester? No. Okay. I was going to say, if, if, if we get a chance at some point over the winter and we're looking for something to do, uh, the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, which I've never actually been to, uh, which I, to be, I've never been, I didn't even know was a thing. Oh my, uh, what? I don't know. Really? I don't get to Worcester very often. Sorry. I mean, just anything in the history field, they always come up. Yeah. Um, and so these busts, two of them at least, are one is of Voltaire, which I think is a little weird. I Sure. Like of all the people, right? Mm-hmm. Like... And the other one's of John Winthrop. John Winthrop. So go check those out if you're looking for something to do in Worcester. Yeah, we'll definitely need to see those. Yeah. But it sounds like he's just kind of the guy you inspired to be. He loved what he did. He focused on his craft. He liked music. He liked singing. He liked architecture. He's just, uh, I think, a renaissance man. He was a renaissance man. Yes. He was a ferocious reader. Um, so obviously he was trained as a housewright by his father. Um, carpentry would have probably been as far as he went if, you know, he really wanted to stop it there, but he was very motivated to take it a step further. So he was self-taught in his architecture. I mean, he was reading books upon books. He was trying to train himself. He was always doing new things. In, in innovative Innovative. innovative, yes, extremely innovative. In a time where innovation is a little bit more risky, you know, like we get online. Yeah, and but you I can... also think he, he had, and that, like what I was saying a little while ago, that flourishing of the socioeconomic culture. Everyone's coming back. They're 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 coming back from the ports of the Far East. They're bringing back you know penguins and shrunken heads, and they're like, "What? This is crazy!" And you can only sort of imagine the culture. The other world, the cult, uh, other world, um, cultures of other places in the world spilling into Salem. You know, these deckhands and shipwrights who are, are coming from all over the world. And, you know, here's McIntyre in the thick of it. Uh, and, and I can only imagine he was probably genuinely inspired by a lot of these things. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And of course, today, you know, we can pop on our phones and look at something from across the world in an instant. If you feel uncomfortable about starting something new, you can just look it up on Google and see a million different people that have done the same thing and maybe succeeded. Mm -hmm. So you feel a little bit more confident to do that thing. But for McIntyre, he creates his own little niche. He, he come, he creates his own style. Um, and He's stepping out of the box in many respects, which I think shows just how innovative he was and um, how determined he was to learn more and to keep progressing with his skill set, going all the way from building houses to fine art of sculpture. So it's quite a progression. 
And speaking of that progression, we are going to talk a little bit about his architectural career. I must say, though, given that whole description, can you not agree Samuel McIntyre would totally be a member of the Creative Collective in today's Salem? <laughs> Him and John Andrews probably have fun. Yeah. Right. We just did an interview with the founder, John Andrews, of the Creative Collective here in town, and it's basically a chamber of commerce for the creatives in Salem and surrounding areas. And yeah, McIntyre would have been. I can only imagine him pitching up to like a like a. We have coffee meetings uh, once a month, and just being like, "Oh, I did this thing, this wood carving, and designed this eagle. <laughs> Dude, check out this bust of John Winthrop I did. Oh yeah, got another. To be fair, like, uh, and this is one of the things that I, I've talked about a few times. Um, the the paintings, the murals around the city. It's very much what I mean. He wasn't a painter, but you know, you walk around the street today, and you see a lot of these big murals very near these big houses which mm -hmm. is a very similar uh, uh thing yeah that's one thing that got me the idea that by the end of his career he could step out of his house and be surrounded by his work that to me is just incomprehensible as we said i don't think anyone through salem's history has left such a visible mark on the city as mcintyre has but it's not after his death like Jane Austen. It's during his lifetime where he gets to step out of his home and, and walk in the presence of these huge buildings that he has created, this landscape. It's absolutely incredible. But like you said, perfect timing. You know, he's coming off the American Revolution. The nation is redefining itself. And it's a time of great opportunity, change, trade, Buildings, rich and people, good economy, good, good housing market. Definitely. So let's dig into his architectural career here in town. So as we said, no formal schooling, and he trained under his father from a very young age, and he did this alongside his brothers. What sets him as apart from his brothers, though, is from what I could tell, they pretty much stayed as housewrights, and they worked together on a lot of projects, but he kind of honed in on his craft the, the embellishment uh-huh so it wouldn't be uncommon say you know while he's working in his shop handling those embellishments the the garlands all of the urns that are going on fences and we'll he talk does, about some of these things he does like the urns but his brothers are the ones that are going out and actually constructing a lot of these things and of course he i'm sure he had plenty of other people below him you know all, all the drywall the window install you know he's i mean sure he does some of that but the, the he's he's the, the fine craftsmanship exactly so the first known record of him and his brothers having completed work on a house comes from a receipt and i'm curious to see if you came across this or not i found this quite funny comes from a, a receipt and it reads for finishing three rooms and two staircases. It was for a major John Hathorne for a home on Essex Street near the southeast corner of Washington. What do we know of at Essex and Washington? Well, that was the Hawthorne's property. Uh-huh. There was already a house there. Uh -huh. It was an expansion on a house. It's just work done on a house. Work done on the house, yeah. Not all of his projects. It's not like he yeah, yeah. created homes for every project. 
And a lot of the early stuff is just, you know, whether, like I said, three rooms and two staircases. Do you find that interesting? Somewhat. Not, clearly not as interesting. I mean, we talk about like the bewitch statue being there. We talk about, you know, people performing the drag show there. I just thought that you might be interested in the, the crossover of history. Salem has a lot of layered history. Yeah, so McIntyre worked on the Hawthorne's homes, which, of course, was probably grandson. I can't say that it is the house that Judge John Hawthorne lived in, but I think it must be, right? Like, it makes sense that it would be. It's not even a hundred years later, or at least maybe an expansion on the, like the nurse homestead. Well, you you were so, you were so taken aback by the idea that an accuser could be walking the streets alongside McIntyre. But How was, about the fact that he is inside the house of one of the judges? Yeah, yeah. Right down the street from the courthouse that saw the trials. That's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting intersection of history. So this first commission, or at least that we have record for, is in 1776. So right on the heels of the revolution. By 1780, he gets his first commissioned by the Derby family. So they had ordered, so Elias Haskett Derby and Elizabeth, we've talked about them before. They wanted to construct a house right across the street from Derby Wharf. So remember, if you're walking down Derby Street, you've got that brick house, which is known as the Derby House in modern day. It was a gift from Richard Derby. It's a nice, nice wedding present. Yeah, a wedding present. Yeah. Literally gifted his son a house um, for him and his new wife. But right next to that house is the what is now known as the Hawks House. And it still stands today. Kind of like a mustardy color. Mm-hmm. Which is a popular color back then. He probably worked closely alongside Elizabeth Crown and Shield Derby. I thought about that a lot. Even though him and Derby were contemporaries, my guess is he was probably dealing more with Elizabeth as she would have been kind of overseeing the home and the decor and all of that kind of thing. It's said that she had a love for display. This home will not be completed by McIntyre, though. The Derbys decided to move a little bit further into the city, um, away from the waterfront in 1783, and the house will kind of just be left unfinished. It'll eventually get picked up by a shipbuilder and um, finished, but that was like his first real connection with the Derby family. Now his first finished commission, his first major commission, is the Purse Nichols house. And we did have some debate on whether or not it's called it's pronounced Purse or Pierce. So I'd I so Pierce Nichols or the, the, the Pierce Nichols house, which is what I've been saying for years. Uh if you've been down the wharf, the the, the street the street, sorry, the store Wait and Pierce um is what everyone calls that. That's Again, and, and it's, it might just be one of these things that we've gotten wrong for a hundred years. And, and you showed me, showed me, let me listen to the uh, the audio uh, via the Peabody Essex Museum. And as they are the owners of the property, uh, you know, I, I guess it is purse, mm-hmm. not like P-U. I think it's P-E, purse. It's, P, it's P-I-E-R-C-E. Yeah, so it's not pierce like to pierce, it's purse. Um, so I guess I'm not, I'm not a, an expert on the pronunciation but Purse Nichols House, um, which is, of course, where Wait and Purse comes from. The, the store is named after uh, those gentlemen, which I'm not 
which I I remember when I learned that I thought um, uh, it and I, I don't know where I'd like develop this idea. Right. Like weight and money. I'm like holding up both my hands yeah, right now and like yeah. back and forth, back and forth. Right? Like a, a, what's that called? A scale. A scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, if you go down, you're like, oh, weight and pierce. It's this merchant store. Merchant shipping weights money was just where my mind had connected. Uh-huh. I, I'd never. Re- and I knew about the Pierce Nichols house, but I didn't know that weight and pierce. They were connected. They were two individuals who actually you know, although Pierce's first name, do you want to have a go? <laughs> that was another one that I really tried hard to get the pronunciation. Um, we can just butcher it and apologize to, to his know. descendants. I know. Can I butcher it? Sure. Okay. I, I if I saw it and I, I've seen, I, Jerthamil. Jerothamil. Jerothamil. Yeah, I think it's something around Jerothamil. Sure, Jerothamil Pierce. Purse. Purse. Sorry. Okay. I'll. I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that one. Um, and they're interesting, uh, Wait and Pierce, or... or, or per- yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll see how long I can. it takes me to write that one out of my lexicon. Um, they're responsible. Uh, they are uh, privateers in the Revolutionary War. Uh, they're prominent uh, uh, merchants in Salem. And they're the ones who have the friendship. The replica of which you can see in yeah. Salem Harbor. Yeah, which, you know, I don't know why I find some things interesting and some things not interesting. No, I was fascinated by that topic. Because, like, so the replica of the friendship in the harbor right now next to the store, Wait and Pierce. What's well, the only connection? It's like one of our biggest connections to this time period. Right, right. It's when we walk down to Derby Wharf and you see the Wait and Purse. Um, yes. I know, I don't. It's so crazy. <sighs> I'm going to butcher that one for years. When you see their their little storefront replica, you see it next to the Derby house, that brick house that was gifted to Elias and Elizabeth for their wedding, next to the Hawks house, which was commissioned by the Derby family for McIntyre to produce. I mean, it's all of it, right across the street from Derby Wharf and the friendship. Like all of it is so closely tied together. Yeah. And it's cool to learn about these pieces of history separately but then you watch them all come together so no I was very excited it was through I think we had talked about them owning the friendship back in our earlier episode on trade yeah yeah but I was reminded of it during this research and I was like oh crap this is the guy that co-owned the friendship I think one of the coolest things about this property and it's something that if you have a chance pull up there is a map of Salem from 1820. It's like a, it's called a planning map. So it's not too overridden with like property lines or anything like that. It shows you how the rivers looked at that point before all the landfill in Salem. As we've said before, a lot of Salem was filled in much like Boston. But during this time, during Salem's great age of sail, the Federalist era, they are using these rivers to their advantage. And it's one of the reasons why Salem is such a successful seaport. And the North River in particular, which we still have a little baby North River. Remember, this is where you can go out and get the artifacts that are tied to the 1914 fire. This is also the same river that runs behind the train station. So if you take the commuter rail into Salem and you get off the train and you look off to your right, you're going to see 
kind of like a, I don't even know. I mean, it's technically a river, but I hate to call it a river because it's I, just so I, I feel like minimal. We, we call it, I think estuary. No, that's the wrong word. No, there's, there's probably a right term because it like it's like an inlet. It's not like a river anymore. It doesn't yeah. flow. It doesn't doesn't go far in because it was eventually cut off. Mm-hmm. But during this time, that river was very full. It was large enough to accommodate ships. Maybe not the friendship, not maybe not that size, but the back of this property that Purse had McIntyre build. If you walked out the back door. You, you could walk right down to a dock of the Old North River. His house bumped up right to that river. He could have pulled a ship up I mean, you still, to his backyard. You still almost could. I mean, it's... I mean, 80... Not to that one, though. Because if you Nichols look... House. If you are in the back of the Pierce Nichols house, you're going to see Bridge Street. Yeah, but that it's, wasn't it's, there. it's right there. Yeah, like, but like you still got Bridge Street, you still have the train tracks. You can't yeah. pull a boat up on top of train tracks and and no, Bridge you Street. Can, you're you're what? You're probably like a No, but imagine walking out your back door and just having a dock and there. having a dock there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we have in Michigan. A lot of you know, sometimes they like to call Michigan the Venice of the Midwest. And I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. But like where my mom lives, she lives in like a canal district where you everyone has a boat. You have a you have a garage for your car, mm-hmm. and then you have a dock for your boat, and you can go out your back door, and you can take the canals out to the lake, and it's right there. And some of these big mansions that these people are building, they're in these opportune spots where they can just pull up their schooner. How cool is that? Well, I think we we fail to recognize. So there's the North and South River, obviously. But even when the uh, Puritans first got here, the amount of wetlands that were here and the, the amount of amount is the wrong word. Yeah, sure. The, the amount of travel they could just do by boat and just get around like, well, and you think about it too, back then that's like the quickest way to travel. Yeah. But like a lot of the marsh and swampland, you could just get a small boat and you're going to have a much easier time getting around than you would getting on and off, off the land. Um, and while it's not as prominently wetlands and marshland as it would have been a hundred years before, there's still yeah. I wonder if you could if you'd stood up on the top of that house. What you have seen? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I would give anything to go back there. Yeah, because it, it's right on the f- front is the wrong word. Tip of Federal Street, like as it's at the end of Federal, and, yeah, and, or beginning. Beginning, I should say beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's. Uh, you can probably, you can stand there and see the courthouse. You can see North street. Uh, you're, you're right there. It's like, it's really in the entrance, uh, to the McIntyre district. It's, it's one of the more prominent houses. Um, it's that mustard color. I know there's a specific color. I feel like we learned the name of this color last night on the tour. (laughs) I think Tom told us like described it for us and i can't remember for the life of me it was a very weird name but yes this mustardy color the purse nichols house which we are going to talk a little bit towards the end of the episode about the different homes that you can still see today but we're not going to focus too heavily on salem now as we move through his life more focusing on salem back then because some of these buildings don't stand Right, so but that one still standing. That's his first 
uh, and that is owned uh, still uh, by the people, not owned still, it is owned currently by the Peabody Essex Museum. Um, just like many other prominent buildings in the city, uh, it is it is one of their uh, historical landmarks. So that's in 1782. By the mid-1780s, We'll see him work on the Joshua Ward House, another big one here in town that does still stand. So do you know why, and I, I don't I don't have an answer, I'm not asking you like in in whatever. Um, there seems to be like a, a, a break in his career. From what time? Like, and maybe it's just the buildings that still stand. There's like a 1780 time frame and then like an 1800s time frame. And... I've got plenty of stuff for the 90s. I think. Um, I don't I, think this guy took any break whatsoever. I, I think that one of the reasons, so I was looking in, in like the stuff that's still around, I think it's because the mansion's gone. Yeah. Yeah, no. The <laughs> and, 17, and if anything, the 1790s were probably one of the most, you know, exciting times of his career. Yeah. It's when he's going from a carpenter and a house right to more of a designer and a carver. The last one I'll mention, though, for the 1780s is the courthouse, which unfortunately no longer stands, um, but this was a super significant commission for him because it was one of the first government buildings to go up post-revolution. So remember, this is 1785. The revolution ends in... 83, and the courthouse will even host George Washington in On 1789. And his little his little jaunt to Salem. Mm-hmm. He was doing a tour of the, yeah. uh, I was going to say the colonies, but they're no longer the colonies. Mm-hmm. We, and we've talked about that before. He stays at the merchant, has uh-huh. dinner with Colonel Pickering. Yep. Yeah. And he will be greeted by the town as he stands on that balcony of the old courthouse. But can you imagine, and this is right in the center of Washington Street, so it would have went up right where the old courthouse was, where the... We hadn't named it Washington Street yet. No. Okay. Although <laughs> it might, I'm not sure what it was named I, I was then. That's what I was just trying to think. It may have been, well, I wonder if maybe they named it Washington Street when, when after was Washington here? came. Or while he was here. Or while he was here or shortly after. Someone knows. That would make sense. When was Washington, Washington? Send us an email. Hello at Sam the Podcast. Um... But that building itself is, I mean, it's so sad that it's no longer there. And I get it. Washington Street literally runs right through it. But come on, just move it. Move it over. We, we move, we the move witch buildings house. all the time. We, we move the Crown Shield Bentley house. We move the witch house. We do, And it's weird because um, you're on Federal Street, right? So you have the district court. You have the federal court. You have large stone structures from the late 18. 18- uh, mid 1800s there and that building would have been a constituent of some of the early buildings that were on that street and it's it's not it's just it's weird the the, the things that do get moved and do survive and things that that don't. people try to save yeah or the things that they just don't it was demolished in 1839 so I bet I bet if that thing lasted like another actually I know if that thing lasted another 50 years, it would have been preserved. They would have saved it. The city hall had been built at that point. 37. Interesting. 
and probably sad. has something to do with the other. One probably has something to do with the other. Because they're right next to each other. Yeah. So again, the courthouse goes up in 1785. And the whole angle of Washington, and I don't like to get too hung up on the big names, dates, places, and battles throughout history, but we can all, you know, say that George Washington is an extremely prominent figure, right? And I'd, I'd say, I'd, I'd say so. I'd say so, but even more so back then. Like, think he was like a a god amongst men, and for him to be able to admire McIntyre's work, like I thought about that, he probably knew the name for sure, which I find fascinating. This guy had the eyes of the first president of the United States on him. So, so George Washington's visiting Salem. He knows he's probably meeting. He's probably met McIntyre. Maybe. Right. Maybe. Um, Derby. Probably. Whoever else. Uh, they probably all ran in the circles. Been and a bunch of good old boys. Right. Drinking but, rum. Sure. Water. Remember, he the finest water he'd ever tasted. <laughs> Right? That's what he says? I don't remember that. No? No. Yeah, that's like a thing. He like Washington? Tastes, yeah, yeah, From like he has water from the fountain. From the Salem? Yeah, yeah. Like the well? Yeah. I did not know this. Yeah, I've yeah. never heard this before. Yeah. Washington liked our water. Yeah. But and didn't I, he know that it had ergot in it well, and it you know made what, people Sarah, go crazy? You're going to have to delete that. Stop, <laughs> stop propagating the false narrative. The amount of people that ask me if something was in the water on tours is absolutely astounding but i will leave it at that continue okay so i i would i would i would hasten to say that it's likely that washington had seen um mcintyre's plans for the capitol building so that's another cool part of his career yeah. that's kind of coming up next so that courthouse goes up in 1785 but in 1792 they're looking for a new Capitol building. Yes. Or looking for someone to construct. Like 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 the Capitol. Not not like not like the Massachusetts Capitol. Which is tied together. Yes, kind of. To the yeah. actual Capitol. Yeah. And to Salem. We'll get to that. Sorry. I'm jumping the gun. They're all tied together. It's okay. I got I got it. You're you're looking at me like, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking okay. about. Okay. So so McIntyre submits plans. Uh, as and as as even today, right? If there's like an architectural firm, you all you you hire you you look for someone. If like the new best big building is going up, right. who's going to do it? And this is going to be the Capitol building in Washington D.C. with the rotunda, with the wings, with the whole nine yards. And uh, unfortunately, McIntyre's uh, uh, plan did not get chosen, but a constituent of his from Massachusetts did, and that is Charles Bullfinch. And that is why the Massachusetts State House, with its big gold dome, looks like the Capitol building capital because ah. they were both designed by Charles Bullfinch. Bullfinch also designs Faneuil Hall and also designs... You're pointing at me like I should know. It's um, okay. Give me a hint. We were there last night. You're there every day. Derby Square? Yeah, at the town hall. Oh, our our town hall. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, so Bullfinch Designs. So when people are like, oh, it looks like Faneuil Hall, you're like, well, yes, designed by the same person. Interesting. Who also designed the Massachusetts Capitol, who also designed the Capitol. I did not know. So Charles Bullfinch did the old town hall, which now sits in Derby Square. Yes. Fascinating. And he also does, and I don't, I don't, there's a, he also does Faneuil Hall. Which is not Quincy Market. Right. Not the big granite. No, one. they're both like, they're both next to each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, So if you look at Faneuil Hall and people are like, 
like I don't I ask people like on my tour I'm like what does this building remind you of and they're like Faneuil Hall I was like well okay yeah sure um, so those <laughs> do people that, really say that yeah, yeah good for them yeah um, I don't think they ever know why though I do I do sometimes tell them uh, but yeah so designed by the same guy Bullfinch who designs uh, the Capitol Rotunda as well but McIntyre a constituent of Bullfinch's was in the running for the same uh, architectural uh, uh, award. Yeah, so Bullfinch has a little bit, he's got a couple more years on McIntyre, a little bit more prestige in the architectural world, um, but they're on par. I, I think that and, might just be, um, and we talked, Mac, Mac, excuse me, uh, uh, McIntyre doesn't quite leave Salem. Bullfinch, I don't know if it's by design or by interest, but he does. Right. And And that might be sort of one of the things if if McIntyre had for whatever reason again a little speculation decided to do more traveling I I think uh I think he would have gotten out there definitely but yeah so so their constituents and that's that's where we get a little bit of the crossover uh there with Bullfinch and McIntyre and they will work together too yeah um there there are plans that and we'll talk about this in a second with Derby's mansion where Bullfinch will do some of the early renderings. And he's actually asked to do one of the first drawings before McIntyre. Um, but ultimately it will be a combination of the two. And also McIntyre is taking a lot of inspiration from Bullfinch. As I said, he's got a little bit more on McIntyre, like a step above and he's more centrally located in Boston. Also, I, I think um, yeah, so it might be that Boston thing that also does it. Uh-huh. Um, but Bullfinch, I, I sort of feel, so they're both Federalist. The, 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 the style is that Federalist style, that like 2.5 floors, those columns, those windows, that sort of thing. And Bullfinch, I, I think in my opinion, scales up and McIntyre scales down. Or scales to like fit his space. But like... We yeah. see a lot of McIntyre's more hand car, the eagles, the the chairs, the urns, the the peaks, of the buildings. He gets a little more in the details. The, yeah, yeah, he's focusing more on like the detail of it. Yeah, well, then that makes sense because he's the one that's doing the actual carving, right? Right. Whereas right. Bullfinch is just designing he's, these he's homes. More of a designer and architect. Uh-huh. So McIntyre focuses like we've got fireplaces carved by by McIntyre around the city. You know things like this. Uh, Reliefs, uh, a lot of those in in the side of we'll talk about something you know Hamilton Hall or what we saw, and you know, like these these ribbons and these urns, and the devils in the details, and that's where his skill lies is in that. Whereas which Bullfinch goes bigger, bigger, and the literally like the Capitol Rotunda or the Rotunda of the Boston Building, you know, and he's not, he's not hand carving that himself. Whereas which McIntyre is sitting here being like, oh no no. He's, he's got that, that finer point of, of, of style. I will say one direct, visible manifestation of this inspiration that McIntyre gets from Bullfinch can be seen in his Lyman estate, as it is now called. Um, it's probably one of the only things that he did outside of Salem, um, at least when it comes to like a full house, and that is located in Worcester. Massachusetts. Worcester. Worcester. I dare anyone who doesn't live in Massachusetts to look up that town and try <laughs> to say it right. It took me years. Worcester. Have I, ever, have I ever told you when I first heard Worcester I wasn't living here? No. No. It, real, 
uh, Adam Sandler did like a sketch comedy thing uh, years ago. So I had like the CD of it and probably like in the late nineties, early two thousands. And there's a, a, a character toll booth, Willie. And uh, he's like this asshole on, on the mass pike, like this. Toll booth. <laughs> and it's like, welcome to Worcester dollar 25, sir. And, like, uh. and then, then he's arguing. The, the guy's like, Oh, you Willie piece of, you know, and he's just like arguing with the patent, like exactly what you'd find like on the mass in a Boston yeah. situation. But I wasn't yeah. living in Massachusetts when I first heard that. So then I get here and I'm like, Oh, it's Worcester. I was like, Oh, cause Adam's. And then I put it together and like, it was more like in ninth or 10th grade in high school. Yeah. If you try to say it for the first time, it literally looks like Worcester, Worcester, Worcester. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. And um, that's not correct at all. But over there, and you can still see this today, there is something called the Lyman Estate. And it looks to be one of the largest buildings that he designed. But it was very much inspired by Bullfinch and his new techniques. It's very large. There's wings on the side. There's a beautiful rounded um, room at the back and it is quite literally an estate. So, um, a lot of land, you can still get married there and stuff, but this will be the principal outside of Salem building that he does. So moving on. So you just brought up a little bit about federalist architecture. We should probably give them a little bit more detail as to what we're dealing with here, especially because this (laughs) is what you're going to find when you walk through the city of Salem. So, so it's one of these things that, that uh, get tend to get bogged down the weeds about, right? Like when we're talking in the beginning, oh, it's this inspired by this. And you have the columns and you have the windows and you have the shapes and the sizes and the, the... There's different types of columns. There's so many different lingos. Yeah. And it's like, well, the Federalist style, I'm going to like verbatim repeat like what I... Oh, from this period to this period, which was inspired by this with the resurrection of this. And then by the time you hit like the mid 1800s like well it's actually it's no longer federalist style it's not and i was just like i don't care i'm sorry <laughs> i don't and like there's people who are probably somewhere like you don't care about architecture i'm like no i just don't all the labels i'm like it just looks cool sorry continue but like overall how would you describe federalist architecture um all that aside i would say uh, one of the distinct things uh, that are, are going to show that it was from the Federalist time period is uh, the columns in front of the doors, right? Mm-hmm. And the the 2.5 story looking house. So like the, it's the, got that three floors. So it's three full floors, but like the top the floor. The top window is is a little shorter. And if you see things along those lines, uh, that is those are two very indicative things of a Federalist style building. And eagles. Yeah, well, that was more, that was a big McIntyre thing. Well, yeah. it makes sense because you're in the early national period of the country. And what so, I mean see, by that see, is like. We got the national period. We got the Federalist period. Exactly. It's hard to pin down and exactly. And like Regency stuff and you're just like, I can't keep it all in my head. Georgian. Yeah, yeah. Which is named after all the Georges, kings, kings of England. Yeah. yeah, right around the same time period. But Federalist architecture, say you're walking down chestnut street in salem you're going to see those three-story buildings very boxy structure Mm -hmm. extremely notable for its symmetry most oftentimes that door is going to be right in the center there's going to be an equal amount of windows on either side oftentimes there was a fifth window so above right so you have 
a door. So you have five. So you, right. have, you have a door flanked by two windows, windows and then and then a row of five. Right. Which adds to that idea of symmetry. Well, yeah, you gotta fill in the right. you gotta so fill in the gap. It's not four and four, it's it's five because you split it down the middle with, with the door. Yep, 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 yep. And then for McIntyre in particular, his buildings often would be, you know, four square rooms, four large square rooms surrounding a central hallway which had a staircase going up to the next floor. With urns and eagles. With urns and (laughs) eagles and grapes and bounts of plenty. And chairs. And lots of furniture. So how about we tackle some of the typical motifs that you see in his work so you know what to look for when you're you're studying these buildings. Well, we talked about the columns, Mm -hmm. which is Federalist style. So there's a lot of people who have that style anyway. The windows. They're actually not Federalist style. The the Doric columns. Okay, I was gonna say there we go. Oh, sorry. So you've got like Corinthian, you've got Doric, yeah, yeah. you've got several different types ionic. of ionic. There it's we go. The you've got the. Oh, don't you remember like eighth grade history? Vaguely. Okay. Yeah, you learn a little <laughs> bit about the different types of columns, which again, I and I said this in the first part, I had no appreciation for whatsoever, um, but. Now I know what to, I know a little bit more about what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Right. And you see the man behind the carvings. But so those are some of the things that are somewhat standard across the, the the style of of federalist styled architecture. Uh, But we get into a little more and that's again, like we were talking about bullfinch goes big and he goes small. Right. Right. Um, So he starts to get into like these, I don't even know what to call them more personal like the like we said the devils in the details so he gets away from like the oh that standard window column etc and the things that really make him unique more intricate yeah yeah i think the urn is maybe the the biggest i mean i know that can be argued um especially not as like an expert in the field <laughs> that's just you know it's okay we're not we're not architects right we're doing the best we can. But, but when you, you when you showed me that that picture of the Derby Mansion, it's like earn, 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 earn these. Um, oh, what's the word? What's the word? Spindle. Uh huh. Right. So it looks like the, these, like the corners of this building, these spindles, and there are all these urns. Those are these the cars. things on top, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's like this building is topped with like these urn spindles, which then have the drapery on them. So if you look at the front of his buildings, especially around the tops of doorways or the top of the building itself, you'll see this drapery of sorts. So I I didn't, let me know if you found this in any of your research. So either I didn't do it or I didn't do enough Um, because we find that same style in the Puritan burying grounds. Oh, I didn't even think about that. And and I wonder if there is some, and typically, so the urn is going to be this vessel for life. And I'm not sure if he's correlating that, but oftentimes. Oh, I'm sure that's what it represents. But within the scope of when you see an urn in a burying ground, the more drapery it has on it, typically the more wealthy that person. Oh, there you go. Would have been, right? Well, that's the thing. That's what these motifs are, right? What do they represent? What do they mean to the the people that are looking at them. And yeah. to us, we may think like, oh, okay. And you just got some fruit in a basket, like on this mantle. Well, the more fruit you have, the it, bigger the basket. Exactly. The, the more drapery, the more ivy. And it's just like today, right? The, it's a, a showing of wealth. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like these old uh, 
uh, bearing your, the old headstones, which we talked about in our cemetery episodes, the more intricate and elaborate these carvings were, the more money you tended to have. And so the exact same thing is reflected in his carvings, which is why I keep saying the urns, because I love that that you can find them both on the headstones of the dead. Actually, his headstone has an urn on it, doesn't uh-huh. it? And you can find them in his carvings. I wonder if he... No. If he designed his own headstone? I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Makes you wonder. Although he died kind of abruptly, so probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I feel like that must be bad luck, what? you know? Designing. Designing your own head. Like, watch it. You, like, design your... It's like a movie or a, no, no, a story on. back come then. On. We you just... design your own headstone and you immediately die. That's no, what... No, no, bad no, no, luck. no, 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 Bad luck. Look at all these... these what, what's his face? What's his face? <laughs> Kanye West. No, no, no. The other crazy one. I was on the right track. Uh, yeah. Elon Musk. No, no. Movie star. I can't want to say Jack Nicholson. And that's oh, the guy with all. Scientology? No. What's no, his name? No, not Tom Cruise. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Name a movie. Face Off and, and Ghost Ride and... Oh, 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 Nick Cage. Nick Cage. Thank you. He has his own burying plot in New Orleans that he's already, like, designed. Yeah, but he had he also had a ton of bad luck in New Orleans. So <laughs> like, mean, dude. Yeah, he got like a lot of his land taken from him, but I guess because it's a burying ground, you can't confiscate that. He's the one with the big pyramid, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, man. He totally brought all that bad luck on himself <laughs> okay, okay, okay. by having his may, his may, headstone bad designed. Bad example. Bad example. <laughs> okay. Anyway, anyway. We don't know if McIntyre's Zion Zone has some, but it does have an urn. So that same image that he uses, um, it can be seen in a lot of his motifs and a lot of his uh, drawings in his chairs. Uh, uh-huh. So we get those the, the the derby chairs, which we'll talk about again in a little bit. That has an urn on it. That the whole shape of it is like this urn centered in the middle with like this drapery over it, which I've I've always really appreciated. And think about the skill that it takes to carve fabric like an image of fabric out of wood. Yeah. Like yeah. fascinating. Have you like like those um you see the meme every so often of of the the marble, you know what I'm talking about? Or when you see a, a marble carving of like a sheer piece of clothing and you can see through it even though it's all you, you know what I mean, right? No, 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 not like you can see through the stone, but Okay, the car- that's what I, that's what I was no, gathering. No, no, okay. The carving. I was like what kind of magical stone is this? The carving is so good that the stone looks sheer and you can see underneath it yeah like it doesn't oh yes 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 so they give you a layered look it looks like there are multiple layers to the fabric the skill to be able to visualize that and to create that from like a block of granite or a block of wood is just fabulous oh like the veiled lady the veiled lady so you can see even though she has the veil over her head and over her face you can still make out the definition of her face yeah that's fabulous so, yeah, but like almost the same thing in wood. And it's just, I feel like wood has probably got to be less. More difficult. Yeah, I don't know. I don't carve. I don't carve either. So sorry if yeah. I'm wrong on that. Yeah. But I feel like marble has got to be, it's softer. I know it's a softer stone. It's got to be a little more forgiving. I feel like wood, it can just, I don't know. But yeah, he, he does that. What what else? He's, he's got the eagles. The eagles, of course. And this is a direct reflection of the time in which he... Um, he Americana, re- right? Of course. The, the bald eagle, American eagle, the the, the flag. Flag. Um, what's the things you shoot? Sorry, blanking. Arrows. It was, it was there. I was getting there. Knock it off. Watching your brain work sometimes <laughs> is kind of fun. 
Uh, at least you guys can listen to my brain work. I've also been told that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Sheaves of wheat. Yes. Horns yes. of plenty. Bowls of fruit. Again, all. He does all... have the fruit over and over again. Yep. Um, which I think, and I, I was thinking about this when I was reading about it. Like, they don't have access to these things as much as we do. What do you mean by these things? Fruit. Like, it's it's seasonal or it's imported, right? Uh-huh. Like, we can just go and get mangoes, pineapples, strawberries any time of the year, right? When you have this motif of, of these things that are a little more difficult to come by. Well, you got to think, too, he's not just... It's not like he has a bowl of fruit on his counter. It's like, oh, I'm going to carve that. These are mm. these are things that he has... That I didn't have, think about that. They've already been a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, this is... If you place him in the greater context of federalist architecture georgian architecture these are things that are happening over across the pond like it's it's a it's the the enlightenment era almost like it's these people there's a a lot of art we're also in the midst of a consumer revolution where these images are being circulated not only on furniture but also in paintings pamphlets like these are things that i think he would have been familiar with uh why he decided to really focus in it makes you wonder like i thought to myself imagine doing the same we do the same thing every day but imagine carving the same thing every but um, but imagine like wouldn't you get tired of doing the draperies the same but it probably got probably got easy right have you seen like those tiktoks and YouTube video like of like master and they're just like they just knock this shit out uh-huh. and you're like the f-? like I couldn't even I couldn't like but I like, wonder if they get bored I I couldn't whittle a, a stick <laughs> like not, not like a stick into something I couldn't whittle like a big stick into a smaller stick without probably breaking something right right and and here you are like finally carving cloth out of it, it's it's a practice practice perfect etc but probably got very easy for him towards the end which also as i'm speaking out thinking out loud might be one of the reasons that he kept trying to learn more evolving right so he's like oh that was easy maybe i can add add in some grapes let me see if i can add an eagle and Uh an eagle holding a cloth holding grapes and it's just that the evolution of his of his skill that, that creativity i think you can see in his work is pretty neat he probably got restless yeah you know doing the same thing over and over again and was just looking for new innovative ways how many eagles and urns before you're like i don't know and then you go on to george washington's face and this yeah then he starts actually creating people yeah the woodrow wilson that's not the right word sorry (laughs) what'd you say i said woodrow wilson nope john winthrop (laughs) okay (laughs) i went went wilson winthrop that was kind of you're close it okay and voltaire why why Voltaire? Because people of the Enlightenment loved Voltaire. Oh, I guess that is true. Uh-huh. He probably read a lot of Voltaire. Maybe? I don't even know when when Voltaire was around. Like like actually around. Google. Oh, oh pr- predicated 60 uh sorry 1694 to 1778. There we go. French Enlightenment writer, historian, philosopher. Also now a modern-day musician. There's like a goth musician who calls himself Voltaire. 
So you'll keep seeing these same images come up in his carvings over and over again. And it's really how people are able to identify his pieces later on, mm-hmm. you know, after his, uh, his life. So those are some of like the embellishments we just mentioned. Um, again, you'll see the columns, a lot of moldings, you know, you go into those o- old homes and those grand parlors and you look up, you got the very tall ceilings and you just have these very opulent, detailed, multi-layered moldings. You're like, oh my God, how many, how many, how many moldings are actually up there? Right. You know, there's like a base molding and then a crown molding and then another right. molding. And one, one is like the, the, the wiggle zigzags and then one has like the teeth zigzags. You know what I'm talking Architects about? Architects are fuming <laughs> right now. We're, we're going to get these emails be like, it's called this. Jeffrey needs to stop. He needs to stop saying this word. I'm sorry. I'm uneducated. Um, I believe the, the, some of his molding is in the PEM. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Some of his molding, his mantles, all of that is scattered throughout the country at this point. Yeah. And another big, big thing, and I'll leave it at this, that he's known for is um, what they're, they're called the porticos. And I think I described them earlier on, but it's like that porch overhang. So and if you're stepping, if you're looking at a Federalist house, you've got this, usually a, a spherical, like a like a, a circular. It's not, it's like bigger than a semicircle. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of covers that entryway yeah. and it's usually held up by columns. Mm-hmm. And if the home is big enough, if the, the building is big enough, as in the case for the courthouse, um, a couple others that we mentioned already, you can step out onto that balcony. Have your morning coffee, you know, sit down. So uh, great examples of this as, as easy is the Josh Ward House and the Merchant Hotel. Sorry, it's the same building. <laughs> is the Josh Ward House and the Gardner Pingree House. Uh, but so too is Hamilton Hall. But again, because Hamilton Hall doesn't face Chestnut Street, a lot of people sort of forget. That, that the front is on the other side. Yeah, yeah. And I believe, and I could be wrong, it's square. I've got a picture. Hold the on. overhang? yeah. Yes, it is square, which was unusual. And that's that's another distinctive thing uh, about Hamilton Hall is that he does use some of these uh, sort of like, oh, it's square. You're like, that's weird. You're like, yeah, yeah, but that, that was that was McIntyre. He's like, oh, everyone's is curved. And now it's like 18. And he did a lot of curved ones too. But now it's 1805 and he's like, no, no, I'm going to make this one square. Yeah. Thinking outside the box, yeah. keeping them on their or, toes, or putting it back in the box. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh! I love Hamilton Hall. He designs that whole place and the, the floor. Have you, you've never been? Okay. I've never been in. I'm very excited yeah, to go yeah, in. Yeah, this winter hopefully. And I think Hamilton Hall very much reminds me of what the Derby Mansion would have looked like. Really? It's got that same um, second floor. I don't think it's big enough or grand enough like to the, the second floor arched windows that face the side and the pill it's like a different style like i think i think if both buildings would have stood at when they both they did both stand at the same time when so if we were to able if we were able to see them today i think it would be very clear that they were both designed by the same person um you can't very easily because like the pierce nichols house or the other houses purse nichols house right but you're they blend into a lot of other Federalist architecture. Uh-huh. I think that Hamilton Hall and the Derby Palace 
would have very you would have been like whoa like they're like sister houses like complementing each other i like that yeah so again that lyman estate goes up in 1793 by 1795 he is primarily focused on wood carving so he and, is and the derby house when did construction for that begin sorry i want to say like 87 okay 86 i think it's 86 but even with a derby house he's like primarily focused yeah. on wood carving so it's during the 90s, the late 1790s and the early 1800s that he's, it's when he starts getting to more of the fine art realm and creating those busts, um, full-blown figures for, say, ships and that kind of thing. So that that's another thing is, unfortunately, none of them survive. Uh, there's a small reproduction of one, if I'm correct, or a, a small model of one. You know what I'm talking about? And, and she's opening a book to try and... Maybe. I don't know. I think, well, this one still survives. That that's is that a reproduction? No, no, that's a that's a model. That's not an actual used oh. one. Yeah, oh. yeah. So he designs, I think, uh, nearly two dozen of these um, mast mast head figureheads. Mast heads, figureheads. Mast yep. heads. Yeah. And I I couldn't quite figure out, and I I think I I don't think I'm jumping the gun here. All of the the masts that mastheads that you see around town, I I don't know, and I feel like I'm missing a link here that's probably fairly obvious to to figure out as I say this aloud now. That probably has something to do with McIntyre. Well, I mean, I'm sure some of them are modeled after things that he has built, but but I would say that because he designed so many, because he was a prominent, I think it's more just because Salem was a busy port, okay. you okay. know, okay, and like. I feel like there's an answer to that question, which we might have to look into. Yeah. Who does, if you're here in the summertime, if you're here in the summertime and you walk down Essex Street, you'll see a bunch of those ship masts, like small reproductions of them connected to the light posts. Mm -hmm. So, um, and if I recall, they're all modeled after real ships. So it makes sense that some of them were indeed modeled after Samuel McIntyre's designs. Yes. See, I believe that one is a, uh, a not a replica, sorry, a, a model. Uh, I'm missing the right word. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think a model's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But so we've kind of brought you through this progression in his career. And actually, if you look back in the old records, he's listed in 80 as a housewright, then listed as a joiner in 1790 and a carver by 1800. So you can literally watch his his career Growth, develop yeah right he's one of those people just i think he got bored right he wants to learn new things he wants to see which, which what makes new- sense when we're talking about like his his uh, uh music skill and and some of the other things he did he was a creative uh, yeah yeah so he starts off with like oh i built a house and then he's like you know uh, the this could be done better this, or the, how about let's do it this way yeah and then i think one of the things that i really like so if you look, and we'll talk about Hamilton Hall again, while the design is some is sort of somewhat simplistic, um, the reliefs that we see in the side of the building and on the building really make it the impressive structure that it is, other than the fact that it itself, which we'll talk about. But you look at you look down um, Chestnut Street and you see all these sort of very simple is not the right word, right? But Hamilton Hall stands out because it has those relief inlays in the wall. 
at the very top. Yeah. So you got to look up for it. Yeah. I'll be honest, before this research, obviously you walk around town, you see the little dainty details on these homes. I really didn't have that much appreciation for it. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. really my style. <laughs> like the drapery, I was kind of meh, you know? Yeah. But when you think about it as a cornerstone of his career and you think about the man behind it, it brings so much life to the imagery. Yeah. And it's like, I love Hamilton Hall because it's like it has this, it doesn't, the side of it faces uh, Chestnut Street. Right, so it's not that the front is on that, that adjacent road and you have these um, banners, the, the wood car, The drapery. The drapery, yeah. like it's on the building, uh-huh. right? And you're just like, it, and it's it's very simple and it's like very elegant. And uh, we can see, as you said, the evolution of his craftsmanship go from the Purse Nichols house, which don't get me wrong, g- gorgeous building, to like that slightly more elevated style of architecture i completely agree and i think elegant is probably the best word to describe it all of his details that he added to this federalist style mm-hmm. were very elegant yeah they're sm- they're not super in your face they're not overly bearing they're they're quaint they're very small so the devil's in the details exactly although he wouldn't like the devil He's a very religious man <laughs> Did build a church? We'll get to that. So it's in the late 1790s that McIntyre gets a very big commission, and that would be the Derby Mansion. And we've talked about this building before. We're going to talk about it a little more because, my goodness, if it still stood today, ugh, I cannot imagine what it was like to pull up to Derby Wharf in a boat in a boat. Carriage. And see this monstrosity, this beautiful building with its dome on top, its gardens in the back, to see this just sticking out right there in the center of Salem. And I think we should probably cut it off right here because we are running quite long. We've definitely covered a lot so far, and uh, we'll give you guys a little bit of a break and uh, come back and, and, and finish up. Samuel McIntyre. In the meantime, go look some of his stuff up. Dude, like we've been sitting here talking about all these buildings. I know you're probably driving or doing some chores or whatever else. Uh, If you've been to Salem, go back through your pictures. Check out Hamilton Hall. Take a walk. Yeah. Uh, Google some street views. The Purse Nichols House. Uh, Oh, you can look on the street view now. That's cool. Go on Google and check out the street view. Check out the street view. Um, check out Samuel Bill, Bullfinch, right? Look at the difference. Charles Bullfinch. Charles Bullfinch, right? Look at the Capitol building. Look at the Massachusetts State House. Come back. And so you get a feel for what this architecture would have looked like, what these windows would have looked like, you know, the urns and everything else. We still got to talk about your, your future home. Uh-huh. Yeah. The summer house. We will return with more fun architecture talk in our next installment. Thanks for listening. See you later.